2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Colette Colligan, the author of A Publisher's Paradise, Expatriate Literary Culture in Paris, 1890 to 1960. And the book has just come out with the University of Massachusetts Press in 2014. Hi there, Colette. Hi there. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
0: Oh, it's a real pleasure. I'm happy to talk about my book. Thanks for having me.
2: Um, I wonder if you could get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you came to the subject of this book.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, I'm an English literature professor at Simon Fraser University, and I've been researching the history of pornography for a number of years since I wrote my dissertation. And I found myself when on sabbatical in Paris at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. And I was struck by the number of English language books that were in the library that were of a pornographic nature and from the 19th century. And I was expecting to find French-language books or English-language books that had been imported uh, from, from Britain, but in fact, what I found were all these English-language books published in Paris, and that was basically what started me on this, uh, on this project, on this research path, to look into the history of English-language publication in Paris from around the late, late 19th century. And, and thus the book was born.
2: And you're um, a scholar of print culture and publishing in general. That's something that's a sort of angle um, on this literary production that you that you take in, in your work as a whole. Is that right, Colette?
0: Yes. And I, I don't know, I don't think I began this project really with a view to exploring publishing history. I think I, I I mean, I began this project with a completely different question. I think I was, I don't even know if I remember what the initial question was anymore, but it certainly wasn't, I wasn't interested in publishing history and it all began with me discovering these English language books uh, in particularly the Enfer collection, which is the Hell collection Mm -hmm. of the, of the, uh, of the Bibliothèque Nationale.
2: I didn't even know about this collection. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about it, like what the parameters are and what else is in this collection. And I think some of our listeners would be interested to know more about it if they haven't heard about it already.
0: Oh, sure. Uh, well, the Enfer collection was a collection that was started uh, in the Napoleonic era. And it contains it contains the forbidden books of, of France. And it... Includes mostly French language books, of course, uh, and uh, the, the, the collection is quite diverse. I mean, it will it contains a lot of Dassad, for instance, uh, and other other controversial and banned French writers. But it also contains foreign language books that were circulating through Paris, and because Paris was a uh, was a important center of distribution of these kinds of books uh, anyway. And so there, it does contain a good number of foreign language books. And what I discovered was that there were a number of these English language books that started appearing around the 1890s that were published from Paris. So they weren't, uh, they weren't imported or anything like that. They were actually published in Paris and uh, so they were circulating alongside some of these banned French books, uh, in, by the same, sometimes by the same publishers, through the same bookstores, and so on. And I think the reason why I got into exploring the publishing history behind these books is that I just became fascinated with how these books started appearing in Paris and getting circulated in Paris. Because uh, I didn't know why. I didn't know how they, how they got there. And what I had read by a bibliographer on 19th century pornography moving into the 20th century in in the English language is that in 1910, the production or the publication of English language pornography in Britain had stopped. Hmm. And I was struck by this and I was wondering why it had stopped. And then when I put that insight together with the fact that I was seeing all of this English language pornography coming out of Paris from the 1890s and onwards, I realized, oh, well, what we have here is not not an absence of this kind of uh, production, but simply a relocation,
1: Mm -hmm. of
0: this kind of production. And that relocation uh, involved in many instances, the relocation of people, people who were driven out of Britain, and set up shop in Paris.
2: Well, and there's so much in the story that's fascinating to me and that I want to ask you about. And I know that, you know, when we talked about doing this interview, we talked about whether this was technically a French studies project or a French studies book. And to my mind, for exactly the reasons that you've laid out, it absolutely is, because Paris is the center of what you're talking about. And there is definitely a French cultural dimension to the publication and distribution of these texts, there's something about the history of the city and the history of culture in that city, um, mm-hmm. you know, from the late 19th century through the, through the middle of of the 20th century that I think makes this a definitively <laughs> French mm-hmm. studies project in some ways, or at least the way that, that I define that. So, um, when and how, I guess this is the big question that we'll talk about through the course of the interview, but when and how does Paris become then this, what, what you call, a uh, uh, and I'm quoting you here, the, a secret publishing haven for English pornography. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I date it around 1890, and for a number of reasons. And some of those factors include a crackdown in Britain on uh, on what was considered obscene publication. And what that meant was that certain publishers who... Were putting out, say, translations of French novels, or just uh, under, or putting out underground English language novels, uh, original uh, English language novels. Those publishers were being put in prison. There's a famous case of this French publisher called uh, Henri Visitali, who was in London who tried to put out a translation, an unexpurgated translation of Zola's Zola's works, who was found guilty of obscenity and had to serve two years hard labor in prison. Hmm. That was in the late 1880s. And a number of other cases like that followed involving publishers who were based in London. And so by... Uh, by 1890 and then throughout the 1890s, publishers just found it increasingly difficult to operate in in London and were looking for an escape route. And sometimes they were fleeing from the law. They had been charged and they actually just fled from London to Paris and set up shop again. And so that, that was one factor. Uh, So basically, British obscenity laws were enforced. They were already in place, but they were really enforced around that period. And another factor was the fact that uh, Paris had much more relaxed uh, laws about laws around the publication of books. And in fact, books were protected from charges of immorality or obscenity. Mm. So there were laws against obscenity in France, or what was called outrage contre bonne mère. There were laws against uh, against that, but they applied particularly to works that were not books, and the book was all but exempt. So the book could be prosecu- prosecuted only in the very highest court,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: it was rarely prosecuted after 18, 1881 uh, there were on, there were only a handful of cases of a book being prosecuted from about uh, uh, 1881 to 1913 just before World War One and so what that meant was that the book was uh, uh, pretty much free its publication was pretty much free uh, in in France and uh, Paris being uh, the capital of this of publication uh, and the cultural capital that attracted uh, foreigners, in particular, it uh, it meant that these these people could set up shop in France and not be persecuted in the way that they were in in Britain. And so th- that's one. Those are a couple of factors that explain how this publishing refuge uh, started up. In some ways, I'm making the argument that. Uh, British laws were more censorious and French laws around publication were, were more liberal. And that's, that's a fairly standard argument that, that can be made. But what I do try to do is look more closely at the lives of these publishers and booksellers in Paris and the ways in which, in fact, they were uh, monitored. They, it, they, they weren't completely free. Hmm. uh, to operate, uh, without regulation. They were in fact monitored and regulated as well. And sometimes that was through, or sometimes that was by, uh, by the police who were instructed by the minister of interior, who was getting information from the British government. And sometimes it was by the local police who didn't like the kinds of people, uh, who would be attracted to a particular bookshop, for instance.
2: I know. And I'm going to want to talk Uh, ask you some more about the kind of history of this and as as it changes from this long period that you cover from 1890 to Mm -hmm. to 1960. But, but before, before I do, there are a couple of things that I just want to talk about before we get into the real meat of the book. Um, And, and there are two things. One, I I won't never forgive myself if I don't ask you about the, the personal thing that brought you to reading pornography in the Bibliothèque Nationale and to thinking about some of these issues, which is that you have this kind of, you talk about this in the introduction, that you have a kind of personal entry into working on these issues and thinking about this illicit literature. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that.
0: Sure. So as I write about in my introduction, I was raised in a fairly unorthodox household, I guess, where uh, my mother had her own her own business, which was a sex shop. And she, this was in Vancouver, and it was called the Love Nest. And some of my earliest memories were, of course, at the Love Nest, uh, where I I would go after school and uh, even do book work sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I do remember all sorts of awkward feelings that I had being in my mom's, it was actually my parents, my parents' shop Uh, and also awkward feelings about entering the shop and exiting the shop because sometimes I would get comments from uh, adults who were passing by or looking in the window about how I shouldn't be near the shop and it wasn't for me. So I remember all of those sensations around the shop. Mm -hmm. And And I also remember my parents sold, everything. They sold lingerie, they sold sex toys, and they sold books as well. And I remember quite vividly the experience of looking at these books. And then once I guess I was reading more regularly, reading these books, uh, I guess that just stuck with me. And as, as I continued in my studies in literature, I realized that this was really a domain of interest looking at illicit literature, erotic literature, and then that interest really evolved into publishing history. Who were the people behind hmm. uh, this work? And I think maybe even that question came from my personal experience of knowing what motivated my parents to run this business and hmm. and some of the concerns they had, and some of the interactions they had with other parents who had children and uh, and so on? so yeah, that that's probably that's that's where it started, I'm sure.
2: <laughs> well, I just I had to ask you about it because I was sort of reading along the beginning of the book, and then i I read this this kind of personal. Sort of, you're re- revealing this this personal history that connects you to the subject matter, and I was I was surprised by it, and it was also so fascinating. I felt like I had to to ask you about it. The other thing I wanted to ask you about Colette, is that that you know the way that you're reading all of this. So if it's informed by some of your personal history, you're also bringing um, some theoretical and 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 historical. Uh, you know, you've you've got a certain approach to to this material and to this history. And the two concepts that I'd like you to say a little bit more about. Um, before we go on to talk about the, the, the three main parts of the book and the chapters of the book, um, are these two concepts. And one is this idea of a of, of culture ghost, and, and the other is this notion of recognizability that you're using to to work through this history and these ideas. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what those things mean and, and how you're using them in the book. Okay. And
0: I see both of those concepts as connected. mm mm-hmm. yeah. And in, in how they inform uh, inform my approach to the material and my discussion of the material. A culture ghost is was coined by this Victorian author called Vernon Lee, who is known as Vernon Lee. And she describes it as as that kind of influence that overcomes somebody. Uh, at a particular moment, and the kind of influence that one isn't necessarily able to to control completely, uh, a kind of influence that uh, that can be per- pervasive as well. and and of course, she's connecting that to culture. and so some kind some aspect of culture that is pervasive, that is not fully manifest but that is latent and that overcomes one that influences one in uh in sometimes imperceptible and sometimes uh utterly uncontrollable ways and i i use that concept in, maybe in two ways first of all to talk about my own fascination with some of the some of the figures that i study mm-hmm. so i One big discovery was this publisher named Charles Carrington, and I see him and his vision of culture as a kind of a culture ghost for me because I'm absolutely fascinated by this man and uh, what he achieved and how he viewed culture. And even as I'm fascinated by him, I – I I kind of wonder why sometimes because uh he's he's also fairly reprehensible. He's certainly on uh uh on the margins of uh of respectability in some ways and recuperability, cultural recuperability because uh, some of his thinking is quite reprehensible. So I used that concept to inform my think um my um uh, my Interest in certain figures and that kind of problematic interest, mm. and I also I also use it simply to talk about uh, just more generally to talk about those remnants of culture that uh, are latent, uh, but then uh, can become manifest through historical inquiry and sc- scholarly inquiry. So that's that's how I think of culture ghost. Uh, through Vernon Lee. Mm-hmm. And I also tied to that is this notion of recogniz- recognizability. And that's a notion of Walter Benjamin, the Marxist scholar, uh, the German mar- Marxist scholar. And I don't consider myself a Marxist, but I do latch on to his term, recognizability because it's uh, part of his concept of an approach to history. And he sees our relationship to history as very much a dialectic between now and then, and that our recovery of history uh, is always changing and happening in the present, in the now. And it is in the now, in a changing now that we might recognize Something valuable about the past, but it's it's a very particular moment, and that recognizability is thus very contingent uh, on on the now, on the conditions of the now, and that's also how I was. I, I've been talking about how I've been doing this history. I came to it because because of uh, my interest in pornographic literature. So that kind of that made me focused on on this kind of literature and asking questions about that kind of literature that another person might not have come to and asked. And I and I came to this history of uh, this publishing haven in Paris, partly because of the fact that I was in Paris doing my research and if I had been doing my research, not in Paris, but say in Britain, I wouldn't have noticed, the recognized, I wouldn't have recognized that there were these English language books in a foreign library. If I were in Britain, that probably would have escaped my notice. Hmm. Working with the Enfer collection, imagining that I'd be mostly seeing French language books and books um, published uh, in, in Paris. And then seeing these English language books against these French language books, that is what I would describe as a moment of recognizability that it was absolutely uh, possible because of my uh, dislocation at that mm. particular moment and because of my own research interests. And, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, and anyway, that, that's, that's how I think about recognizability and, and how it informs my approach to history.
2: I've read a number of books, you know, call it doing these interviews and reading yours and thinking about these echoes, um, you know, both in terms of when you refer back to to your childhood experiences, but also, you know, that whole idea of you're writing about these expats and this literary production that is expatriate literary production, but your process of coming to the material and thinking through these questions was also to some extent this kind of experience of dislocation and, mm-hmm. and relocation. And I find those echoes really fascinating. And I think it's one of the things that we don't often get to talk about as scholars, how our ideas come to us um, through these intellectual threads of reading and then thinking about where we're going to go, but also these, these um, very visceral uh, and, and material <laughs> kinds of relocations and movements that, that as you say, it, that's really fascinating to me, this idea that that wouldn't have struck you had you not been sitting in the no. French national library.
0: No, and it was in fact, and it was a long period of dislocation for me because I was on my sabbatical mm-hmm. and it's 16 months. And it happened early, fairly early in, in that 16 months. But the, the idea didn't strike me right away. I, remember, mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact moment that I was thinking, what are these English language folks doing here? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do remember I had that question and that was lingering for a while. And it was because I could, I was dislocated and, uh, for a period of time that that idea could germinate and then develop. And, and then also I had the time to explore these expatriate roots of publication Mm -hmm. in, in Paris so yeah, it was yeah, it was my own expatriation that really led me <laughs> led me to this subject. And also subsequently, I mean, I know this is isn't uh what we're going to focus on today, but subsequently my interest in expatriate lives and literature in Paris during this period, because it's just opened my eyes to uh all the other kinds of uh, expatriate experiences at this time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for instance, there were a number of English language newspapers in the 19th century being published out of Paris. Mm -hmm. The BNF has something like 190 different English language newspapers from the 19th century into the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And I just find that fascinating. And, uh, I would never have thought of, of looking into that press that history of the
2: press uh otherwise yeah it's it's really fascinating that the 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 way in which that notion of the expat life community you mm. know cultural literary production is so much at the it's a central feature of parisian culture especially i mean french culture maybe generally but 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 especially of culture in, in that city which is why this his, this this history is such an an important part of the history of the of the city in in from mm. the, the late 19th century to the through the mid mid 20th. Um, so let's let's move on to talk about the sort of three main parts of the book um, okay. that that you've you've got here. So there's the, the, the three sections of the book politics publication and pornography and of course the the story that you're telling from the late 19th century through up to, to 1960. Um, there are connections between these these categories and sections of the book, but you divide it into these sections. So the first section that you've already sort of touched on a little bit um, deals with, uh, and I'm quoting you here, the complex political dynamics behind the rise and fall of these Paris editions, right? Of these, of these yeah. English language books. And so this is really, uh, it's one of the kind of fascinating things about the book is the way you've organized it sort of, this is the, the, the part of the book that really focuses on the kind of legal history and cultural policy um, and the interaction of these things with, with the the publication history. So um, maybe you could sort of sketch out for us, you know, you've got these two chapters in this section, one that deals with the late 19th century up to the first world war. And um, then uh, the, the second one that deals with the period after the first world war, right up to 1960. So what, what happens in this history of politics and cultural policy across this period, what changes over time? And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you could also come back to this idea of, you know, it's not so simple as, Anglo repression, French freedom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's something more complicated going on here. So
0: I, I should say this was this was the most difficult part of the book for me to write hmm. on politics because I'm not trained as a historian, but I was dealing with uh, I was dealing with government archives and uh, especially I was dealing with legislation and the kinds of materials that uh, are not used as 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 often by literary scholars as they are by historians, and I also struggled in some ways to 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 write these chapters i in fact, I rewrote these chapters uh, a number of times in order to try to get out this 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 history of what was happening uh, in Britain and what was happening in France that led to the creation of this publishing haven, and then eventually uh, its dissolution. Mm. And the first chapter is where I talk mostly about British British censorship and the crackdown, as I've talked about earlier with you. and And then subsequently, the ways in which the British government tried to police some of these publishers who were popping up in paris Mm. and so what what i what i found was that the british government was closely monitoring the operations of these paris publishers because they realized pretty quickly that they had relocated to paris and were sending material to britain um, through the post largely and so what happened uh as revealed in home office papers and letter correspondence, for instance, is that the British government began secretly monitoring the post and opening up letters. And this was, of course, uh, highly, uh, highly questionable. Mm -hmm. And uh, home office lawyers were even questioning this practice of opening private people's mail because mail was protected and uh, but nonetheless, this was going on for a very long time, and this correspondence is fascinating because it is there that you discover who some of these people were in paris and uh, and how they were operating and how they were operating through the post. but you also get insight to the ways in which uh, the the home office developed this cultural policy mm. of uh, they arguably illegally opening opening private mail and then even uh, more interestingly, opening up conversation, diplomatic conversation, conversations with other countries about uh, foreign, foreign, uh, foreign publishers who were importing, exporting this kind of material mm. uh, through Paris. And Britain essentially became a kind of global watchdog of an increasingly internationalized uh, pornography trade, but all secretly, kind of outside the purview of courts and so on. And so I basically track the way in which the British government uh, cracks down on these publishers and then begins to monitor them and opens up diplomatic channels to... To uh, monitor, them, monitor them more globally, and I and I explain how uh, this kind of this kind of first censorship and then monitoring ultimately led to the rise of the trade in Paris, in particular, because uh, Paris, because of its more liberal laws uh, of the press enabled pornographers to operate out of there a little bit more easily, say, than other locations, even if it's Brussels or something like that. And so I try to show how ironically, uh, this publishing haven was very much a British creation. Hmm. And so I, I talk about that, and that's that's where I really track what's going on eighteen nineties to nineteen thirties, and the political dynamics and cultural policies that gave rise to this publishing phenomenon that I'm talking about. And then I move into just what's happening in a later moment where we know we know much more about uh, publishing in Paris, English language publishing in Paris. In the 1920s, of course, because mm-hmm. that's when uh, works like Ulysses were published out of Paris, and everybody knows about that. And uh, and how Sylvia Beach, the American, published for the first time his Ulysses from Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I, I what I do is I I try to track what's happening in the 1920s as well and the uh, 1930s, and then even after. Uh, World War II with English language publication in Paris and track the ways in which uh, government, uh, the ways in which laws but also uh, government policies change during that period uh, to inc- to still facilitate this or still kind of um, facilitate is not the right word, but to still enable this kind of uh, publishing phenomenon in Paris. Mm-hmm. But then also gradually lead to its decline. And one, one argument I make is that more censorious laws were introduced in France around foreign language publication
1: mm-hmm.
0: leading up to, uh, uh, in the period leading up to World War One. And so there were laws against foreign language publication uh, published in Paris that was considered injurious or seditious. And, mm. uh, But that law could could have been applied more broadly as well. And that was, of course, to police fascist fascist thought in Paris. But Mm. that law remained on the books. And also there was just a, a, a less liberal government, of course, after World War II as well that initiated new laws that eventually meant that Paris was no longer the necessary place to publish these kinds of books. And at the same time, Britain and America, their own laws around obscenity were drastically changing. And so what I try to do in this section on politics is just explain this phenomenon uh, by tracking what's happening legally speaking, but also just by governments and mm-hmm. uh, and kind of backdoor exchanges that are happening. Uh, through diplomatic channels.
2: So, just to clarify for me, Collette, and for our listeners, that is—is is there a dispute between the French and British government over this? Like, is there a kind of stop sending these books to to Britain? Well, and no, we won't because we're French and we we, yeah, we just won't.
0: <laughs> that's a good question, and it, it's it's a complicated one because the the first answer is yes. <laughs> In some ways, so the British would, the British government would send some kind of letter. Okay, can you, uh, can you monitor this person? And uh, Ministry Ministry of Interior would would contact the police, and a police person would contact the you know the publisher, and basically say nothing can be done. It's not infringing on French laws, Mm -hmm. and that was frequently the response, uh, happening mm. in the early period. So 1890s, beginning of the 20th century. So that was frequent, frequently the response, but then there were also more local responses to pornography and also English, especially foreign language pornography. And so you'd have, uh, parents writing to, um, their writing to the mayor about how they didn't want these kinds of uh, publications and these kinds of stores uh, visibly uh, or visible in the streets for their children to see. Hmm. And uh, so there was a more local response that, that, that was what that, that wasn't as liberal, right. Right. Uh, About these kinds of publications and the work that Brooke um, Blower does, is, has been influential to me. Her book is called "Becoming Americans in Paris. And she has in fact tracked down a lot of this correspondence, this is especially happening in the 1920s and 1930s when uh, a lot of American tourists are coming to Paris. And she tracks down a lot of this local reaction, to these tourists, but then also the businesses that feed these tourists, and how they are uh, ruining neighborhoods and so on, and associating Paris with vice and uh, vice and immorality and ruining Paris and then france's reputation internationally and so that's also the story that I try to bring out uh, in in that first section
2: hmm. It's, it's fascinating because it does mess with some of those kind of tropes and stereotypes of French culture and, mm-hmm. you know, the whole French population somehow being more open to mm-hmm. um, sexuality, explicit literature, <laughs> pornography, that kind of characterization that is also a kind of foreign imposition yeah. on to French culture as this sort of more more uh, liberal, uh, freewheeling uh, mm-hmm. culture when it comes to sexuality. So in the second uh, part of the book, you really focus on on the publishing and you've got these terms that I mean they're probably known to people who work on publishing history, but you know, you talk about book legging and book laundering. <laughs> I don't know if these are your terms or where they but I went, I you know, I was taking notes, I put several exclamation marks actually these thinking, oh what concepts. I'd never thought about these things in, in, in those ways. And so the second part of the book is more this kind of commercial side and the mm-hmm. what you refer to as a social history. And this is the part of the book where you really get into, you know, the figure you've already mentioned, Charles Carrington. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about him and, you know, why his story is so important, why his career is so important, and why he plays such a central role in the book. Sure. And I should say, so what I do with this book is I have my three
0: sections. And in each of these sections, I'm driven by different kinds of, uh, different kinds of, materials, Mm -hmm. uh, historical materials. So in this publishing section, I am looking at I'm looking at books. I'm looking at whatever archives I can find from these publishers. And there are no intact archives. It's a letter here, a letter there. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, uh, and then just discussions around their, their businesses. So it's a different set of historical material, historical documentation that I work with in each of my sections. And I basically in this section on publishing, begin in the 1890s again and move to my later period. Uh, And so I I retell my story using a different set of documents and asking a different set of questions. Mm -hmm. So in the politics section, I'm really interested mostly in the regulation of this material. In the publishing section, I'm really interested in the, the, the business people, uh, who who are behind this and the businesses that they uh, cobbled together and th- that's that's what drives me through the second section. And I at the heart of this section on publishing is the figure of Charles Carrington who uh, I basically say is is the person who really established this, this interest in the Paris edition and who was the father of this publishing phenomenon.
1: Mm. And
0: his story is really fascinating. And people who have studied 19th century pornography will know his name. Uh, but beyond those circles, and that circle is pretty small, <laughs> beyond those circles, uh, he's not really well known. And I really hope my book will will make him uh, a better known uh, cultural figure. Because I think some of the cultural work he was doing was really fascinating. And I knew a little bit about him going into the project. And over about the three years of research, I discovered a bit more and filled in some blanks. And one of the most interesting discoveries was uh what he was doing when he was young when he was in London because he was a londoner he was born in london he was an anglo jew and he came from a fairly large family he didn't have much education bibliographers have shown how he uh, shown some evidence about how he got into the book trade but why he was in London and then set up shop in Paris as a publisher has never really been known. And uh, at one point in my research, I discovered that he was in London as a young man working as uh, a, uh, I think you just call him a stockbroker. And he was buying and, or he was uh, selling stocks to uh, interested buyers, but it was all fraudulent. He was just taking their money and actually not investing it <laughs> <laughs> anything. And uh, he was thus called in the period a bucket shop runner. So he, he got money and just put it in a bucket and did nothing else uh, with it. He didn't actually <laughs> buy stocks. And his brothers were involved in this business and they were eventually uh, caught, charged, and uh, put in prison for a couple of years and it seems pretty likely that Carrington, uh, whose original name was Paul Ferdinando, uh, that Carrington was going to be charged and on his way- and put into prison as well. And so he uh, he fled London to Paris, renamed himself Charles Carrington, seemed to have a bucket of money from his bucket shop running days, and set up shop uh, in Paris, and he. There were other publishers in Paris who put out original English language books, but they were few and far between. There's been a little bit of research on this, but it was he who really, uh, who really invented this brand of the Paris edition. And he put out translations of French novels. He... English, sorry, English translations of French novels.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He put out original English books, some of which were pornographic, some of which were a little bit more literary. And the important thing to know about him is that it was always a bit of both. Some of it's pornography, some of it's some of it's more liter- literary. He was one of the first people to translate into English Anatole France, for instance. Mm. Uh, and so, as a cultural figure. W- really at the heart of English language cultural exchange, I think he should be recognized in a way that he hasn't been recognized before. And he was also the publisher who put out uh, Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray after no British publisher would touch it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And so anyway, I talk a lot about his biography, his business practices, how he... Really viewed culture literary culture in an innovative way, insofar as he he really saw himself as uh, as somebody who was railing against working against uh, censorship and was able to understand how there was value in pornographic marginal corrupt parts of culture there was value in that and that that shouldn't be censored that shouldn't be banned and that should be something that is talked about and i think another another aspect of his thought that i find interesting is that he he mixed high and low
2: mm-hmm. so
0: he he put out uh, really kind of terrible, <laughs> terrible literature, in, in all the senses that you can imagine, alongside really highbrow literature uh, that that was a little bit more recognized. But he was interested in those kind of cultural, that kind of cultural leve- levelling and those cultural impurities, and and even talked about this in some of in some of his writing. And so I talk about his business, uh I talk about how he uh influenced and and to some extent worked with some other publishers. And then in the last chapter on publishing, I I move into establishing one of the other main claims of my book which is that I'm not just talking about pornographic publication in Paris that's that's happening, English language pornographic publication that's happening 1890s, beginning of the 20th century. I'm also talking about how that is linked to the high modernist mm-hmm. publishing that is happening in Paris and that is more talked about in the 1920s and, and later on. And I look at the ways in which Carrington was, and his business and his business practices and his cultural thought uh, were linked in very material, but uh, in other ways as well, to publishers like uh, Sylvia Beach, who was behind the publication of Ulysses, or uh, Jack Kahane, who was behind the publication of Henry Miller's novels, mm-hmm. The Tropic Cancer, and so on. And so I try to trace some of those uh, publishing and distribution connections uh, uh, between those peddlers of pornography and those high modernist cultural
2: uh, figureheads. It's one of the things that I found most compelling about the book is sort of yes, there is this kind of um, you know, fascination with the sort of the, the dirty books that you're, yeah. you're dealing with and in and in, in, in how you've came upon this material and how you got interested in it. And then the sort of illicit publication networks and censorship and all of these issues, but that, um, and I think you put it this way, you say, you talk about exploring these connections between the the most degraded and the most reputable, uh, modernist novels. That's the way you, you put it. And I, I think situating this history in relationship to that perhaps better known, um, Mm -hmm. history of, of modernist literary production, Especially in Paris, but not only in Paris, but especially in Paris during this period is mm-hmm. one of the things that I found most compelling about the book. And it kind of takes us pretty naturally into this, this last part of the book where you talk about, where you focus more on pornography, that that becomes the lens of the third part of the book. Um, and you focus on the books themselves. And we probably don't have time to talk about all of them, but, um, you talk about these three texts, uh, Suburban Souls and is it Teleny? Telany? um a uh, uh, a work that's that has been attributed to to wild and then you talk about lolita um mm-hmm. and and uh you know as a fan of the novel uh, for many years i i was really really fascinated by this Parisian story and this dimension to to that novel. So I wonder if you could perhaps use that as an example or one of the other two to give it kind of give us a sense of what's going on in this third part of the book and, and how you're working with the books themselves in this section to, to to come at the story in a different way.
0: Yeah. Okay. So uh, just quickly, uh, what I'm trying to do in this last section is as you say, talk about the books themselves and in a very close and detailed way. And because in the other chapters, I'm not doing any kind of more close literary analysis. Mm -hmm. So in this last chapter, I want to do more close, take a closer look at these books, both the more disreputable books. So that would be the novels like Suburban Souls, which uh, was an underground novel that involves pseudo incest, Mm-hmm. And also Teleny, which is sometimes labeled the first gay novel, and as you said, attributed to Oscar Wilde, and connect those more disreputable pornographic novels from the earlier part of my study to one of the most respected novels from 1955, Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. Mm-hmm. And so I pair these novels very deliberately. Uh, in order to establish those connections between the early er, early part of this history of this publishing haven and the very later part and uh, to and to make that connection between the pornographic and what is then later considered far more literary and far more respectable in ways that and I hope that pairing will seem discomforting to some people mm-hmm. it's intended to be discomforting mm-hmm but I try to when I talk about Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita I talk about the way in which Lolita came to be published and the way in which uh Nabokov really tried to manage its publication and just to briefly to briefly discuss this I maybe I should mention what Lolita is about in case some people sure, haven't Sure, yeah. Uh, Lolita is a is a novel that was quite controversial because it involves uh, a middle-aged gentleman Humbert Humbert's obsession with a prepubescent, prepubescent uh, young girl Lolita, and eventually he does in fact rape her and seduces her and 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 there's a story that follows from that and. He couldn't find a publisher for it for a long time. I mean, it took him about five years to write it. He knew that the material would be difficult to publish. Mm -hmm. He couldn't find a publisher in, at that point in his life, he was based in the States teaching at Cornell. He couldn't find a publisher for it uh, among the New York publishers. And so went to Paris and, Of course, Sylvia Beach, the publisher of Ulysses, was no longer publishing. Uh, He maybe had her kind of as a possibility or that model of publication as a possibility, but he ended up getting uh, published by a much less reputable publisher, Maurice Girardias, who had put out books uh, like, I don't even know if I can remember, the title is like Tender Thighs, maybe. With the like <laughs> okay. <laughs> that. And it, it wasn't so, it wasn't, it's not really known if Nabokov knew about Gerodius' reputation. He did have a sense of what it meant to be published in Paris because of the publication of Ulysses in the 1920s. Maybe he thought Gerodius would, uh, and that Paris publication would give him that, that kind of edge, that edge that would promote the book and also link him to the tradition of the great Ulysses being published in Paris. It came out. It was controversial. It was somewhat successful. And over the next three years, Nabokov, I argue, managed that association with the Paris publishers in order to get a a New York publisher who could get behind the book and really promote it. And the success behind all of this is that Lolita becomes a best-selling novel on the best-selling lists, and uh, becomes financially quite rewarding for Nabokov, and he can end his teaching career and so on. But I, I talk about the ways in which Nabokov uh, very strategically used that Paris address in order to land... Uh, uh, a kind of more respectable address. So using that disrespectability in order to engineer his more, his respectability. And uh, that's basically where I, where I end the book, but I also try to make the connection between uh, what's happening in, with Nabokov and the publication of Lolita, make that connection back to what's happening much earlier in the 1890s.
2: I just want to sort of back up for a second something I didn't ask you a few mm-hmm. minutes ago that, that, that comes up. I think you talk about it in the introduction and then in the section on pornography, you know, you're using this term that is so um, mm. contentious. Um, well, it's not just you that's using it. I mean, you're talking about it historically and the way that it has been used. And I just wondered, you know, whether in any kind of conversation with feminist scholarship or certainly when you're talking about a novel like Lolita, the, the, there is all of this kind of... Um, yeah. There's a politics to all of the material and the way that we think about the material that, that you write about in the book, and I just wondered how you negotiate that through the book, either by looking at these terms from a more genealogical perspective or historical perspective, or you know whether, how you engage those political issues that come up um, in terms of interpretation and reading and, and thinking about this history.
0: Mm-hmm. The word pornography, in particular,
2: yeah, that or or just that there is a whole literary history of kind of thinking about the the moral politics of this material, and yeah. I just wonder whether that came up for you in writing the book.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, uh, yeah, I use pornography. T- pornography is the term I use, though that term has fluctuated historically. But I do just stabilize the term and establish that that is the term that is most often used. Uh, to describe sexually, sexually explicit material meant to arouse. It does have a very complicated genealogy and uh, all sorts of redefinitions that mm-hmm. surround it, partly because people are uncomfortable with the word. But I, I just take ownership of the word, mm-hmm. and it's it's the label that was attached to suburban souls, Telany and Lolita, and uh, and at the time as well. So I stabilized stabilize that term in my discussion, and partly so that I'm not shy about talking about what is immoral. Culturally reprehensible, illegal. So in Lolita, uh, child rape. It, in some of Carrington's other works, there's a focus on incest. There's uh, there's a focus on other taboo subjects,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: such as um, his sexual fantasies around slavery that appear in some of his publications, and. I certainly am confronted by these representations and mm-hmm. and feel disgusted by them sometimes and that is that's pornography's effect uh, to to arouse to to discomfort and I just feel that I'm not going to Hide that away, and I also want to reveal the ways in which these figures I'm working on explore these explore these topics, and these all of these topics are not recuperable ethically. But I think it's very interesting the ways in which these figures that I'm looking at and this literature that I'm looking at um, try to try to talk about the dirty secret of culture and reveal it and bring it out and, uh, in uncompromising ways so that it is visible, it is discussed. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that completely, no, answers yeah. Question. I mean, it's the difficult question to answer. Sure. Some of this material is just, it's really, it's really hard to take and, uh, it is not acceptable, but I think it, it is interesting to talk about.
2: Well and I think I mean you, you have answered my question and and i and I think and and I guess some parts of that question remain open but mm-hmm. but I think that that what you referred to earlier in terms of you know deliberately discussing a range of material that is not always put together mm-hmm. and using that term uh pornography because it was the term that was used at the time or that I think that that has then the effect of us you know pushing us to sort of rethink the history of of high modernism, as you say, and to think about those connections. So I think it's it's uh, it's an incredibly uh, productive effect of of the work that you've done here. Well, Collette, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time and there's one final question that I'd, I'd like to ask you, which is what are you working on now?
0: Ah, okay. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'm working on a few things, but my most exciting uh, recent discovery has to do with a... French library and it was a library that was owned by just the personal library of uh, Guillaume Apollinaire huh and it's intact and oh. it's at the Bibliotheque Historique um, de Paris
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it has all sorts of fascinating foreign language books including English language books some some of the books uh, about which i 've talked about in a publisher 's paradise, but didn 't know about uh, or didn 't know about those editions when I wrote a publisher 's paradise, and also Guillaume Apollinaire was one of the first bibliographers of the Enfer collection wow, and so what that discovery has opened up is the whole history around the, the bibliography, the writing of the the writing of the bibliography of Enfer and all the all the work that went behind it and all the discussions with other publishers and booksellers. So that's what I'm investigating next to find out a little bit about the making of the bibliography of the Enfer collection and the story behind that.
2: That sounds Incredible, and I hope that you'll come back and talk to me about it when it's in new book form. Um, I just want to thank you so much, Colette, for joining me um, and and for writing this this rich book and, and and bringing this history to light. You've been listening to new books in French studies. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time.